Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Today will be a little bit different as we're dealing with a movie about a legend, not an historical story. Let's start by bridging the gap in our timeline. The Three Kingdoms period in China we mentioned last week ended in 280 CE. Less than three decades later, in 306 CE, Constantine the Great became Emperor of Rome. This was a little over a century after the assassination of Commodus. Constantine was the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. He called together the First Council of Nicaea, where church leaders met in 325 CE and officially agreed that Jesus was divine. And not only was he the son of God, but he simultaneously was God himself. Five years after that, Constantine declared Byzantium to be the new capital of the Roman Empire. It was renamed Constantinople, and today it is known as Istanbul. Later that century, Theodosius I was the last emperor to rule both the western and eastern halves of the Roman Empire. At the same time as all this, the Mayan civilization was thriving in the Yucatan Peninsula, though they were not without rivals. The whole region was populated with city-states similar to what we saw previously in Greece. Within months or even days of the beginning of Theodosius' reign, the powerful city of Teotihuacan deposed the Mayan ruler of Tikal in modern Guatemala to put in place rulers they endorsed instead. Also overlapping with Theodosius and bringing us into the 5th century is Chandragupta II of the Gupta Empire in India. Now, not to be confused with the Chandragupta we met in Ashoka, who founded the Mauryan Empire 800 years earlier. Chandragupta II ruled at the height of the Gupta Empire in what some call the Golden Age of India. A few decades later, Attila the Hun was being a thorn in the sides of both the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire. The Huns were nomads from the Caucasus mountain region. There's actually a worthwhile show called Attila, starring Gerard Butler from 2001, that I only excluded from my list because it's a two-part TV miniseries and not technically a movie. Two decades after the death of Attila in 476 CE, the last Western Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, was deposed by the barbarian king Odoacer. As always, it's not that simple, but we're flying through just a few key milestones here. Just another five years later, Clovis succeeded his father as king of the Salian Franks and... As Roman control faded away, proceeded to unite all the Frankish people for the first time, making Clovis the first king of France. Sort of. Again, history doesn't do simple. France itself wasn't a country as we'd think of it, and his title wasn't king of France, but he was the ruler of the Franks in the area that would become France. Clovis, born a pagan, also embraced Christianity. On Christmas Day in 508 CE, he was baptized as a Catholic. And Clovis overlapped with the second golden age of the Sasanian Empire, the last period of the Persian Empire. The first period, if you recall, was the Achaemenid Empire, which we saw conquer Babylon with Cyrus the Great. The Sasanian Empire will rule until it falls to the Muslim conquest in the 7th century. Now, all that was to get us to the time of King Arthur in England. But there is no hard historical evidence for King Arthur. So I promise I will discuss Excalibur, the title of this episode, but mostly this will serve as the history of Britain slash England up to this point in our timeline. 
And let me briefly flash forward to just why this relatively small island will be so significant to much of the rest of our tale. I've talked and talked about this and that empire going back thousands of years from the present day. Well, the empire to end all empires will be the British Empire. At its height in the early 20th century, the British Empire will cover nearly one quarter of all landmass on Earth. Only two other empires ever even surpassed half of that, and they both had the advantage of their home turf being in Asia, not an island like Great Britain. There's a reason you're hearing this now in English. Anyway, so you may have noticed there's this group of islands off the northwest coast of Europe. These are the British Isles. The largest of these islands is called Great Britain. Humans have lived on the island for hundreds of thousands of years. Indeed, it used to be possible to walk across from the mainland as recently as 8,000 years ago via marshy land bridges that are now underwater. Britain first entered the Roman sphere when Julius Caesar invaded. The people he encountered were the Britons, one of many tribes of Celtic origin throughout Central and Western Europe and the British Isles. It was these tribes who would have built Stonehenge in the southern part of the island four to 5,000 years ago, about the same time as the pyramids of Giza in Egypt. Larger issues took Caesar elsewhere, so it wasn't until 43 CE under Emperor Claudius that Britain was again invaded and became an official province of the Roman Empire. Though it wasn't the whole island. In, in the 2nd century, two defensive walls were built, the remains of which can still be seen today. The Hadrian Wall, built under Emperor Hadrian, and the Antonine Wall, built under Antonius Pius, the predecessor of Marcus Aurelius. Roman control of Britain seems to have been tenuous at best, but the Roman influence was significant. Places like Bath, with its Roman baths, show the distinct stamp left by Rome on Britain. By the early 5th century, Rome had withdrawn from Britain as, again, the western half of the empire was in sharp decline. As the Romans left, the Anglo-Saxons came in, a Germanic tribe that would become the dominant cultural force on this part of the island, once controlled by Rome. The details of Anglo-Saxon migration into Britain are still debated, but we can clearly see the effect today. The largest country in the UK is England. England. Angoland. Land of the Angles. This is why English is a Germanic language. Not that we would recognize the Old English spoken at the time. The Britons and other Celtic tribes, or at least their cultures, were pushed away. We still see the Celtic-influenced languages today with Welsh and Wales and versions of Gaelic in Ireland and Scotland. It's also worth clarifying here that while Great Britain is the island, England is the large country on it that includes London. The United Kingdom today is a nation of four countries. England, Scotland, and Wales, which make up Great Britain, and Northern Ireland, which is a small part of the island of Ireland, not to be confused with the country Ireland that takes up the rest of that island. Got it? This finally brings us to the story of King Arthur. Arthur is said to have been a leader of the Britons against the Anglo-Saxons sometime in the late 5th or early 6th century. It's very possible that there was a figure who was the historical basis for Arthur, but the truth is lost to us, so he can officially be considered no more than a legend. I'll go ahead and give a quick rundown of the movie. It opens by saying we're in the Dark Ages. This is a term most of us have heard, and it's basically an overly simplified way to describe the time between the fall of Rome and the beginning of the Renaissance. It's typically not a term used by historians anymore, but hey, it sounds cool. The first scene is a battle with Uther Pendragon, and I don't think it really says who he's fighting, so again, let's say it's Britons versus Anglo-Saxons, though it could just be some infighting amongst different Britain factions. The wizard Merlin is lurking on the battlefield, and Uther wants him to give him a promised legendary sword. 
Merlin gets Excalibur for him from the Lady in the Lake, and Uther is victorious. The other nobles agree to rally behind him and have one land with one king, though we don't really know what land they're talking about. Arthur quickly abandons his new alliance with the Duke of Cornwall when he decides he must sleep with the Duke's wife. Merlin transforms Uther to look like the Duke, and he goes to the Duke's wife, and Arthur is conceived. Merlin had told Uther that the price for his help was any child born of their union. So when Arthur is born, Merlin takes him away and has him raised by his friend, Sir Ector. Uther is later ambushed, but before he dies, he plunges Excalibur into a stone so that no one else can be king lest they can claim the sword from the stone. We jump forward a couple of decades, give or take, and Arthur is a young man serving as squire for his adoptive brother. There's a jousting tournament going on for the right to attempt to draw the sword from the stone, and Arthur has forgotten to bring his brother's sword, and in his haste to find one, he easily pulls Excalibur from the stone to the disbelief of everyone, to the point that they make him put it back and let others try, but they all fail before Arthur again easily claims it. Many feel this means he is the king, but others consider him too low-born, not knowing his true father is Uther. After talking to Merlin in the woods, who tells him his father was Uther, and just trying to take it all in, Arthur rallies his men to rush to the aid of a lord played by Patrick Stewart, the highest-ranking person who had instantly supported Arthur's claim to be king. He is under assault by those against Arthur. Arthur fights well, and in this battle, we get my favorite moment in the whole movie. So Arthur is fighting in the river with Sir Urens, his most outspoken opponent. Arthur has him beat and tells him to yield and recognize him as king. Urens continues to refuse and argues that Arthur is just a squire and he'll never yield. Arthur agrees on that point, and in the middle of the battle, he hands Excalibur over to Urens, kneels, and tells him to make him a knight. Half the crowd shouts for Urens to claim the sword for himself and, and, and become king. The look in his eyes says he's about to do just that, and he thinks Arthur must be a fool. But suddenly, as if controlled by Excalibur itself, Urens goes from about to strike Arthur to placing the flat of the sword on each of Arthur's shoulders and says, In the name of God, St. Michael, and St. George, I give you the right to bear arms and the power to meet justice. Arthur accepts, and Urens says, Rise, King Arthur, and now kneels before Arthur and swears allegiance to him. Now, Urens here is the only historical character in the entire film. Also called Urien, he was a king in the small kingdom of Hreged, just south of Hadrian's Wall. He's not particularly significant, but did manage to get recorded in some histories and poems of the time. At some point, he was appropriated into Arthurian legend. His son, Owain, was also incorporated into the Arthur myths, but does not appear in the film Excalibur. The rest of the movie is just a continued rush through all or most of Arthurian lore, we meet Lancelot, the best knight in the land, waiting for a king worthy of his sword. Arthur establishes his council of knights of the round table. He marries Guinevere. Arthur's half-sister Morgana is interested in learning all of Merlin's tricks. And we see them all in the newly built Camelot. All seems peaceful, but one of Arthur's knights, Gawain, accuses Guinevere of having been unfaithful to the king with Sir Lancelot. Indeed, Lancelot has professed his love to Guinevere, but they have not acted on it. After a trial by combat between Lancelot and Gawain proves the queen's innocence, well, then they do finally spend the night together. Lancelot and Guinevere, not Lancelot and Gawain. Morgana then is able to trap Merlin in a magical prison while she tricks Arthur into sleeping with her and conceives the evil Mordred. Arthur plunges into a dark stupor and tells his knights they must find the Holy Grail to redeem the land. Years and years pass, and the land becomes further destitute. 
Finally, Sir Percival finds the grail. Arthur drinks from it and is revitalized. As they ride to battle Mordred, the land blooms once more with the spirit of their king. Merlin defeats Morgana. Arthur and Mordred kill each other in battle, and Percival casts Excalibur back to the Lady of the Lake, where it will await the next worthy king. Again, an intricate, age-old legend, but little more than that. There are two key works that popularized and solidified the Arthurian legend. The first was Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain from the year 1138. Despite its title, it's as much fantasy and invention as it is history. Then there was Thomas Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur from 1485, upon which the film Excalibur is based. If there could be considered an official version of the King Arthur stories, this would be it. And as much as the movie packed in, there are many more tales in the book. And personally, my favorite version of Arthurian legend was written by British author Mary Stewart in the 1970s. She tells the whole thing from Merlin's point of view, starting with Merlin as a six-year-old boy. She takes most of the magic out of it to try to root the fantasy more into our real world. Instead of being a powerful wizard, Merlin is just way smarter than everyone else and just likes to feed the myth that he is a wizard. I suggest you add it to your reading list. The first one is called The Crystal Cave. Excalibur does have an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, though it's definitely an oddly structured movie. The opening of Roger Ebert's review of it from 1981 is, quote, what a wondrous vision Excalibur is, and what a mess, unquote. It did get an Oscar nomination for Best Cinematography, and I love the score that uses epic music from Richard Wagner and Carl Orff. A few more notes before we move on. I mentioned Urin's knighted Arthur in the name of God, St. Michael, and St. George. This obviously shows that the characters are Christian, and most Britons at this time would have been, though their Anglo-Saxon adversaries were likely still pagan. St. Michael was one of God's archangels in the Old Testament, and St. George is said to have been a Roman soldier in the late 3rd century who was martyred for refusing to give up his Christian beliefs. He's also known for the story of him slaying a dragon. Jousting, which we see briefly, was a popular sport in medieval times, but probably not yet in the time of King Arthur. Likewise, the full plate armor we see most of the knights in the film wear was still another 700 years away. The quest for the Holy Grail. In terms of the King Arthur tales, there's actually some debate as to whether or not this refers to the grail used by Jesus at the Last Supper, and the movie makes no mention of it being Jesus' grail. Different versions of the legend describe it as even being just a stone or a serving tray. Later versions of King Arthur, however, did emphasize that it was Jesus' grail, which Arthur's knights sought and that it had been brought to Britain by Joseph of Arimathea, the man credited with the burial of Jesus and said to have later traveled to Britain. It's also occurred to me that I haven't discussed the use of horses by humans yet. We've seen plenty of warriors on horseback in the movies we've watched thus far, and Excalibur has been no exception. It's hard to nail down exactly, but humans have used horses for at least 5,000 years and possibly much farther back than that. It's easy to forget that until the 19th and 20th centuries, if you needed to get somewhere on land faster than your own two feet could carry you, it was via horsepower. There are countless ancient works of art illustrating the power and importance of horses in human culture. Other important figures during the alleged time of King Arthur, I mentioned Clovis and France. In Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, again formerly the Eastern Roman Empire, Emperor Justinian built the famous Hagia Sophia in the 530s. If you don't recognize the name, you've likely seen a picture of this massive temple in Istanbul that has served as a church, a mosque, and now a museum. And in 570 CE, the Prophet Muhammad was born in Mecca. So that's where we're headed next week, to see the beginning of the world's second largest religion, Islam, 
in the 1976 film The Message, starring Anthony Quinn. <laughs> 